0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadulu. How did YouTube go from a place to find funny cat videos to a haven for political extremism? Our guest on this episode, Mark Bergen, is an award-winning tech journalist at Bloomberg News. His new book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, is the definitive story of how YouTube upended traditional media and changed the world through untamed freedom of speech. He joined Luke Naylor Perrett to tell us more. So let's start with
1: the basics. Your book covers an awful lot, basically, the the sort of cultural history of, of YouTube. Let's start with Google and YouTube as a workplace. What is it like, having studied it for so long? what I get as a layman is, is this sort of weird gimmicks, the, the puppy parties and the slides and, and the wheel desks. Is there a darker side to it? Is that actually accurate? What is it like as a workplace? Google really invented the uh, what's now sort
2: of commonplace in, in Silicon Valley and our, and our cultural understanding of Silicon Valley of like the coddled workplace, right? The, the employees that uh, you take the, the wifi, You know, air conditioned buses, shuttle buses down the campus and, and you have all the amenities and you have the massage rooms and kombucha on tap and, uh, and and effectively like a workplace where you're very much encouraged to stay there as long as possible. Um, and this was like a, especially around the time when, so YouTube joins Google in 2006 and this is sort of, uh, this booming period during with, with Google. It's just gone public. It has more money than God and it has these, these young employees that are, um, I think at the time, certainly very idealistic about the internet and its possibility, and Google was a sort of, um, insurgent force in technology, in, in, in culture and media, uh, in, in corporate America. Uh, and I think, you know, people that generally enjoy working there, YouTube was, it's, so sort of, it operates in a separate campus from Google. It's a few miles north in, in, uh, San, San Bruno, a satellite suburb of, of San Francisco, and they bought this actually like, uh, a few weeks um, and moved in like the day before I believe or maybe the day of the, the Google acquisition actually and have, and have been there ever since uh, you know the the one big amenity that the YouTube offices they have this gigantic uh, slide and you can go on YouTube and, and watch a bunch of videos of it they like they the, they previously certainly before the pandemic used to have YouTubers come in and, and visit the campus uh, and this was one of these amenities to try to encourage people at Google to come work for YouTube uh, and I think that uh, you know a lot has changed but this was a decade ago and at the time YouTube really wasn't a desirable place to work uh, relative to the rest of, of Google um, and some of that was just that it wasn't seen as like a driver of innovation and growth for the company and some of it to be totally frank was like they're just it didn't have the amenities there for a long time it didn't have um, on-site chefs right and uh, it didn't have a lot of these like Google really high-end amenities that, that employees wanted to work for. And so I thought that was like a really interesting dynamic in the history. But, but overall, you know, YouTube employees, I think, uh, certainly of Google employees until the past few recent years have, I think, lived up to that reputation of being a relatively happy, joyous place to work unless you're in the throes of
1: the, the political problems. Which of course there are many. And actually on that, let's, let's step even further back you call them the YouTube dudes, the the founders of YouTube. It was something that really shocked me that YouTube started off in its idea phase as a dating platform. And, you know, a decade down the line, Me Too happens, sexism scandals happen at YouTube and Google. I wonder if you could illuminate the YouTube dudes, the founders, and what echoes those foundational years and those foundational people have on the the workplace and on the the world moving forward
2: sure so youtube is funded by, by three alums from from paypal the so chad hurley was a designer at paypal uh actually credited with sort of designing the the, the initial logo that that paypal came up with and steve chen and javad kareem were were engineers there and they met at, at paypal paypal was this sort of notorious company for um these like type a overachievers you know you have like what, what's what's and, uh, now famous in the Valley of like the PayPal Mafia that went on to start uh, Yelp and SpaceX and LinkedIn. You know, I talked to like people that worked with uh, with the founders of YouTube. They were certainly well, they were res- respected and regarded pretty well as like talented uh, designers and engineers, but they weren't really seen as someone who, people were going to start uh, a, a big world changing company. Uh, and so I think it surprised. Um, I know it surprised a lot of a lot of their peers when they came out of the gate. You know, at the time it was uh it was this really like scrappy era in, in silicon valley and youtube uh for the 18 months before it was bought by by google it was a pretty tiny company at the size of 60 people then um i don't know the ratio i think it's like skewed pretty heavily toward towards men uh you know the some of the, the early important their their first lawyer was a woman and and set some of the i think like really drastic like, dramatic changes in some of the the, the culture and rules around um, content moderation and I I think that, you know, there was uh, it didn't have the reputation, say, of like uh, an, an Uber um, or even of a Facebook of sort of like I think, it, you know, even through for later years, YouTube certainly was accused of like leaning towards machismo and like having a very like male heavy leadership. And I think that this is reflected in the sense of not having a lot of empathy or um, understanding of the like the female YouTuber experience. Uh, which became these, like, really... And I think some of that is, you know, a really a great example um, is what they call beauty gurus now, like fashion and makeup tutorials on YouTube, which is a gigantic category, really, like, transformed the industry. For its first few years, it was this kind of mystery for a lot of people at, at Google and YouTube. Uh, and you talk to, like, early beauty creators, like, YouTube didn't know how to categorize them. Uh, it took, I think it was until 2014, which is, like, nine years into the site's existence, until like, really I really finally woke up and said, like, oh, my God, we have this, like pretty fantastic commercial opportunity sitting on our hands here. And in this group of creators that we have kind of, we haven't really managed or given them re- resources. And, and I think s- some of that can be certainly attributed to the fact uh, about like the the dynamics of, of the company that's founding
1: that, in that certain time in Silicon Valley. So you threw this, this, this relationship between creators and the sort of the, the, the founders or just the um, the people who run YouTube and Throughout your book, I got the sense that there is an ever so slightly antagonistic relationship between creator and and sort of business. Um, A couple of examples really struck out to me. Firstly, when Casey Neistat, a famous YouTuber from New York, wanted to do a sort of post Las Vegas shooting ad drive and promised to give the ad money to charity, YouTube demonetized it because it has reference to a shooting which seems like a sort of open goal the other the other very sort of famous moment is is when someone is told that they need to write the copy but it should have quote no personality it should sound like a computer right what is youtube's relationship with creativity with its creators and its, its um its content
2: yeah that's a really complicated question and and i i hope the book does the justice to i think uh, a really important and fascinating story of of like YouTube was the single most important company in birthing this new creative economy that you know that that they were the first company to pay people online to produce video and really produce content in, in a meaningful way. Now you're seeing social media, there's a lot of platforms sort of moving in that same direction, right? So TikTok basically just copying YouTube model and but the short form video and, it, and it, but they are the first to really creators instagram's trying you know like roblox spotify twitch like all these sort of platforms are moving in this world where social media no longer looks like oh it's a feed with with my friends that i know and with the college with you know it's full of like these influencers and creators who i certainly don't know but may have this kind of personal relationship with so and and that was a profoundly new form of entertainment and media that i don't think uh, I think YouTube has certainly took a long time to, to recognize that, and part of that was the beginning its early years that they just didn't see the commercial potential for creators. Like it wasn't um, something where they thought that at their their model at the time was we're gonna you know we're Google Google's the world's biggest digital advertising company we're gonna like stick ads on these videos it's gonna be great but we can't do that on you mentioned dogs on skateboards right like the early sort of viral videos that. That went out there was two problems with that, one is the, the quality, you know, advertisers are like, why am I running an ad on on this thing that doesn't look anything like primetime TV? And, and the second is sort of the unpredictability, which I think is sort of lost on, I, I found it really interesting in, in reporting the book, you know, the way that television advertising works for a long time is like, I'm going to buy ahead a season, you know, in the spring, I'm going to buy for the fall schedule. Uh, and YouTube came to the advertisers like, look, we have this tremendous audience, we have these. All sorts of, you know, millions of creators pushing videos that we're not paying for, right? It's not like TV, but we have, we have cannot predict at all what's going to be a, a viral hit tomorrow, today, let alone in the fall. Uh, and so that was a big structural problem where for a long time it was like YouTube just didn't see potential with its, its creators. There was a, a survey that Variety, the Hollywood trade publication published in 2014 where it said, you know, YouTubers are just as popular many times, in many cases, more popular with, with teens. I, I think they, they pulled teens than a list celebrities, right? So they had like PewDiePie and Smosh, these big YouTubers, teens recognize them more than they recognize Johnny Depp and, and Jennifer Aniston. Maybe Johnny Depp's now regains the popularity given his recent, uh, online virality. But the point is that that, that article went around YouTube and they said, it, like the people who were there described it to me as this it's epiphany moment, which in hindsight seems kind of silly, like how late they were. But, but oh wow, we have celebrities here on our platform. So yeah, it's fast forward a few years, and you mentioned the Casey Neistat video. It's a really telling snapshot, and this was a time when when YouTube was going through. 2017 was sort of its its worst year, uh and, and that started with some major creator controversies, and then a, a s- sustained advertising boycott over. Extremist and troublesome inappropriate videos. And, and so what they end up doing in particular cases like that is they set their filters really strictly and, and they're like, we don't want any ads to run on anything inappropriate having to do with mass violence. And in that case, mass shooting. Um, and so that, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage. The history of YouTube is a history of like the company sort of unintentionally uh, making decisions. To have that have like severe economic consequences for for this greater economy because the rules of the road weren't very clear and they built a system that would just with with just so many people making so much money uh, at a time and then it kind of when when every time they tweak the
1: dials it had like really profound consequences. So one of those dial tweaks that I'd like to I'd like to key in on is what I think is probably the most important moment in the whole story, which is the moment that they decide to go for watch time rather than anything else. And we may discuss in a moment about what that does to the kind of political ecosystem, but just staying on the creators, the stories are heartbreaking. You know, people who've set their whole lives based on views or likes or comments, you know, you describe um, a bloodbath, uh, channels are destroyed overnight. This decision to go watch time reflects something else in the book, which is this, at least when I read it, this idea that YouTube is just a story of growth at all costs, is sort of the archetypal late-stage capital. You know, Larry Page, the uh, the creator, has this thing just 10 times bigger, you know, break the internet, just, just make it big. To what extent is YouTube just a sort of horror story of the capitalism age that we live in right now?
2: So... um that particular watch time transition, I thought, uh, was really interesting for a, a couple of reasons. So that just to take a uh, audience context, like this was, you know, initially YouTube's first, their primary metric for how they're going to rank, algorithmically rank the videos in their search. And, you know, when you type in, uh, into YouTube.com on a, on a like on the search box or in the related videos is, initially it was based on number of clicks, number of views that you had. So if you clicked on a video, watched it for two seconds, said, this is trash, I'm not going to watch anymore. That still counted this if you watched the entirety of the video. And so I think mean, reasonably at the time, YouTube was like, this is a really like shoddy metric. We, we need to find a better way to, uh, reward videos. And, and this was also like dovetailing with this, this idea that, oh, this was sort of the beginning of like social feeds. Facebook would, had just jumped out of college dorms and was now like becoming this worldwide phenomenon. And, and so YouTube's like, well, we can tailor sort of personal feeds and, like servicing like a a specific feed for you and they'll give you the videos that you as a viewer that you really want and also we can like prioritize the videos that you watch the longest which makes logical sense google is an extraordinarily logical company i think i hesitate to to, uh i I think the growth at a cost um you know in that example like they actually lost revenue initially from that chain like overall that that had a you know that basically just like unlocked this business potential and they, they went from like zero to sixty, but like and, and certainly saw that as as the goal, right? Their goal was to like, hey, you know, we have a certain at that point it was like five to seven minutes of every like the average daily viewing session. Someone who watches YouTube and maybe doing it five to seven minutes a day. You know, T V is four to five hours a day. Like we should be on scale with TV, like we are just as good as TV. Right. Um, so I think that, that for sure that's the 10 X mindset that you mentioned that, that, Larry Page, the founder of Google had the, the interesting thing about, about YouTube is like a lot of the decisions they, they make when you say growth at all costs, like they, they, I think that because they're balancing this, this greater economy on one side and like the decisions they make to like say grow, um, you know, they, they could grow at all costs. That could have been to like, never share a single cent with, with YouTubers that clearly wouldn't have, you know, if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have had like millions of people creating content for them. And they've made some decisions to like cut back recently. Uh, I think in that I cut back on, on things that maybe like dent their engagement because of political concerns. And that's, but I think at that point in time, it was like, um, certainly growth was the most important thing. Um, but they just, it, you know, they there was these sort of unintended consequences where they didn't see the um, side effects, uh, the downstream uh, impacts of say like we're just going to prioritize engagement over everything else, and because we sort of trust our, our viewers and users that they're, um, you know, at this time like there was no sense that like oh this could lead to, you know, all sorts of troubling uh, things like filter bubbles and conspiracy theories. Um, and propaganda, and all these things that like, really just weren't on the radar at the time.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating.
1: All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that
0: matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed
1: It's described by someone in the book that the ecosystem is as a, quote, a kind of long-term addiction machine. So Claire Stapleton, which is sort of one of the key figures in, in your book that you might want to talk about a little bit, on her first day, she describes Google as a strange utopia. But utopias have to have ideals, and they have to have morals. And there's this constant background noise of YouTube kind of pretending that it doesn't have ideals so it doesn't have political ideas. It's freedom of speech, freedom of speech, trust the people, trust the masses. We don't have any ideals. Is this a fair reflection on what was actually going on behind the scenes?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I do think YouTube had, I think their ideals have certainly shifted. And I think at some point, you know, the book spends a lot of time in the Arab Spring, which was this really fascinating moment in, in, in sort of, Certainly with, with Facebook and Twitter and YouTube as well, like, it became the the, the stage for, you this was, like, social media was taking down dictators, right? And, like, and for YouTube space, it was, like, oh, wow, here's a really great opportunity to, sort of, prove that we are a legitimate uh, platform for, uh, you know, actual news. And, like, this was, again, uh, to go back to the point, like... This was a time when they had trouble convincing advertisers of the legitimacy that the, that the dogs on skateboard site. And now it's like we're not just dogs on skateboard, but we're actually like revolutions in, in Iran and, uh, and across the Arab uh, world. And that point, they also fought like tooth and nail to keep videos up that governments wanted to take down. And, and there was a, a, a classic example in the book is this innocence of Muslims, which, which was a movie trailer for a movie that, that never got made, or sorry, never. Released, it, it was. Um, you go back, go watch it. It's like uh, it is kind of a ludicrously poorly acted film, and, and depicts the Prophet Muhammad as this like backwards barbarian, and it's like very critical of Islam. Uh, and it was it, it kind of wrapped up around this time uh, of the Benghazi uh, attacks and this sort of like whirlwind of like political change happening uh, where the Arab Spring started to to, to turn. Uh, and YouTube at the time, like the State Department, the Obama State Department said, like maybe take this video down. Like there are riots across the world, and they're sort of pointing to this video from an American platform. And YouTube st- st- stands its ground. So I, I like that. Like listen, if you fast forward a few years. If that happened today, they would. I, I'm almost guaranteed they would take the video down. Like they're they're so much more inclined to do that after after 2016. And so there was this moral framework of. Uh, which I think was, was, um, you know, people have described it as sort of naive, but it was like, we don't want to impose our sort of, the, the, the moral framework in some ways was we don't want to impose our morality on anybody else. Like, who are we to question in this case? Like, this looks like a, a criticism of religion, So like, who are we to decide whether we want to, you know, we can allow criticism of religion on our platform. We certainly want to like satire. We want like so much of YouTube was, was sort of satire. Um, and I think they, at that point they didn't want to say like, we don't want to, uh, in- impose this, but both like, we don't want to impose this on, on other countries. And I think there was, this, um, this idea that like, we are standing up for freedom of speech, which conveniently was we are standing up for like keeping videos and content on the platform. Uh, and at the time this was like, they were being, they were fighting off, you know, copyright lawsuits. They were had from the early, like beginnings of YouTube, um, you know, the Thai government, Turkey like named the country that wanted to shut it down. Um so I do think that there was uh at least on the like legal policy team uh that had grown up in this certain era of the internet where like internet freedoms were always under threat. Does that extend to the entire corporate leadership that you certainly not? And I think that that's changed for a variety of reasons. But I do think that was sort of when, when I like I thought Claire Stapleton's a fascinating character. She joins Google in two thousand seven and and this was like a very different company than, than it was when she, when she left uh, in
1: 2019. So jumping on that slightly, if you listen to certain commentators on certain news networks, or you go to parts of YouTube, you will hear the the, the idea that YouTube is woke, that YouTube is anti-right-wing, it's, it's anti-freedom speech. Two case studies in your in your book that sort of run through, firstly, the fact that routinely queer creators are hurt by the algorithm. Um, they're loop, sort of looped in with um, pornography, they are subjected to abuse based on the freedom of speech. Alex Monet, a, a, a writer, has this phrase, the digital closet, and I think that definitely comes in there. And then the second idea is this, you know, when it cracked down on ISIS and on extremism, things were, you know, you talk about ramping up the filter, there's a moment where they accidentally include the word Allah in their filter and wipe off, you know, they, they wipe off all the ads from Ramadan sales why is there such a discrepancy in news networks and on certain parts of YouTube compared to the reality, which is that the people who are really hurt by this are predominantly not right-wing conservative creators in this ecosystem?
2: Yeah. I think that was one of the
1: most interesting parts of the story for me
2: is like, I think uh, they, in 2017, so after the the London attacks and London bridge attacks, YouTube was sort of like a really turning point for the company uh, when they were like, we need to start like sort of, much more aggressive. But before that they were sort of handled these these cases that like they would take down videos if they're violating the rules. Okay. They're like they had a big problem with ISIS videos, but the the approach was to sort of we're certainly going to take down things if they're showing like graphic violence. But we're going to try to do what what you, you Google always talks like counter speech. Like why don't we just produce more videos that like they got the State Department to, to put out like anti ISIS propaganda. Uh, in twenty seventeen that changes and they're like Okay. And part of that was because they were in the midst of a of a major advertising crisis. And so they decided we're going to go, we're going to go very heavy handed here. Uh, not just the graphic violent videos, but the actual I- ideology underpinning that. Uh, so we're going to remove or restrict a lot of, um, uh, Islamic clerics, Islamist clerics that were tied to these groups. There was staff inside and, and I have a story in, in business Week about this that pointed out like that was not an, an equal distribution of thought. Like that was not a, a the policy was not equally across all forms of violent extremism In the most obvious case was sort of white nationalism, white supremacy. Um, YouTube's argument here is similar to, to I think what, what other platforms have said is, you know, there's the, basically like we can work within when, when governments have standards. Um, so as, as we know, in a post sort of nine 11 world, Western governments are much more inclined to go after Islamic terrorism. Uh, and so there are registries and sort of official structures in place, uh, and and to like categorize people, you know, once you're sort of categorize on the extremists, and, and then YouTube can take take action. There's a like TC, which is, um, forgive me, I don't know the acronym, but it's like a, a, all the tech companies collaborated on, like we're going to identify terrorist content uh, across platforms similar to the way we do child uh, pornography and copyright, right? Same the same way that YouTube uh, works on copyright where it's like they know every single copyrighted material that's put on the site. Like they have a phenomenal system for that. It's like world class and, and it's made them the, this financial success that they are, they basically did that same thing, but for a very narrow set for uh Islamic extremism, effectively, uh, and and registered terrorist groups. And and they they they've talked about this, sort of admitted it, but like certainly in the US, to doing so on the sort of far right and in white nationalist nationalism is hard because of intersection with our contemporary politics is is real and so that's why i think you know that's where you're seeing all these calls of bias especially since the the pandemic began when youtube became much more aggressive about taking down um both misinformation about the uh the the virus and and vaccines uh and then more recently up in the u.s at least about the, the 2020 election and so you know and i think like listen there's there's all sorts of we talk a lot about like, whether well, how many of those criticisms are in bad faith, but like the way that YouTube operates, so, you know, there's not like a lot of communication. They don't get a, you know, even if I'm a, a conservative commentator on YouTube, I don't get a call. It's like, here's where in your video you said, this is where you kind of crossed our line. Uh, it's just that you get an automated email that says, like, this this video has been taken down, your account suspended, like this, you know, this video has been demonetized, and so it is just like Oz behind the curtain uh for, for both act for both you know groups, all groups on YouTube, like, sort of. Uh in some ways, all groups are treated equally unless you're like one of the, the megastars, which uh think can get a bit a bit more like handholding.
1: holding. And just to we peek behind the curtain to Oz and we get my favorite line in the entire book, which is quote, once an entire staff meeting was devoted to addressing booty shaking videos. Um, which I just like to get on on, on, on record. <laughs> so that, was,
2: that. That was early. I mean, that was early on, and I will. Um, there was uh, now that you brought that up. Like, there was a sense that uh, it, I thought it was an interesting example too. From early at YouTube's time at, at Google, there were they ran into these like tower babel problems with different countries having, and and the one that staff kept bringing up was like the UK was like very fine with sex, but like not good with like hooliganism. And so, uh, at the time there was a, Rachel Whetstone was a, was a, uh, like she ran Google policy and comms, believe is the close to David Cameron sort of in, in UK, um, circles and like went on the BBC Panorama in 2008. And and the show was all about, it's called Children's Fight Club, I think, and all about the the prevalence of uh, videos of kids fighting on YouTube. And, and she just gets like, reamed on this topic right and so it comes back to the youtube staff and says like well why don't you guys clean up your act right um and so there was pressure from from that to like remove things like graffiti videos right or like well i think some people in, in youtube thought was like this is um you know you're, you're basically kind of being classist here and so that was like this really in, in um tension and, and booty shaking videos is a really i think a, a really fascinating topic where they'll you know they, they don't know it's really hard to draw the line uh, about what is sort of artistic, uh, and what is offensive. Um, another example a few years later is the, um, uh, the music video, uh, Blurred Lines, Robin Thicke, um, this video, which is, you can go on YouTube and see it. It's, it's pretty, yeah, at the time it was pretty controversial. They're just naked supermodels cavorting, uh, topless, I think. I would think YouTube was okay with being topless. Like the kind of video that if you or I would have posted on YouTube, that would not work right and and this was like there was this extended debate about like is this an artistic because youtube had carved out this art art exemption for artistic videos they could somehow like get around its rules and then the company always sort of says like we have these standard we have these operations in place uh and yet there are moments like this where it's like there are there are humans inside these companies making these calls just because that's like inevitably how media programming works
1: so kids fight club booty shaking videos dogs on skateboards Another central theme, I think, is this idea that YouTube is desperately trying to stop being seen as lowbrow throughout the entirety of its, of its history. And I really got a sense of that inferiority complex, trying to pander to traditional media, trying to co-opt TV and get big celebrities. Could you speak a little bit about that and then also why YouTube Rewind 2018 in the context of this is such a big uh, case study?
2: Yeah, there's, I, I think there there's there's tension that runs throughout the book that I think is really fascinating between sort of the, how the way the company wants to to see itself or sees itself or wants it to, to, to see itself. What it. you know the, inside the company they say this is like the brand versus the platform. So the brand is sort of this is how YouTube sees itself, and the platform is like this is really what YouTube is, right? Uh, and, and in many ways, like the the sort of gift and, and curse of YouTube is like it is it is so large and so multifaceted that you can't say it's one thing, right? Like. Hank Green is just, he's a phenomenal sort of veteran YouTuber. And it's like, I think I asked him stupid questions or something, but, but how would you describe YouTube? And he's like, that's like asking you how do you describe music, right? It's like, you know, it's just such a broad category. So I, I do think that in in that sense, like YouTube has, uh, I I think a lot of fail opportunities to like, there has always been this, this quality programming on there. Like education is a perfect example. Like, um, you know, early on there were there were, like Hank Green and, and other uh, YouTubers came on and, and made like entertaining educational programs. And they were actual educators making things for, for kids and toddlers and, and, and YouTube and Google sort of sees itself as like Google sees YouTube as like the world's biggest learning platform. I don't think a lot of regulators and politicians see that necessarily. I, I don't think a lot of school teachers see it that way either. Like they, they made attempts to have YouTube be part of school curriculum uh and there's a sort of an alternative history where like they set the standards in place in which like maybe you I think in that case you'd have to sort of whitelist like a certain number of channels and videos um and then effectively like turn off the rest of YouTube um and and they did, they didn't do that because you know they have this this strong philosophy of like we're not the gatekeepers deciding uh, what sort of you know I, I, I what videos or like at various times they did this but more like Google tends to want to say like we want to be uh a love like create a level playing field with sort of a, a YouTube talking point for a long time. Uh and to that extent, like then they try to do quality in, you know, they have something called Google Preferred, um, now it's called YouTube Preferred, which is basically like a top shelf for for advertisers, like where they said they charge advertisers rates comparable to to TV. Uh and that was basically a uh, an algorithmic selection of the most popular videos on YouTube. And so they got into, in, in 2017, uh, got into some, some really big problems there, uh, when like they found out that Russia Today was in there. Uh, there were a lot of like very strange and troubling kids channels that were in there. So sorry to answer your question on, on the 2018 rewind, which, which is I re- related in the sense that there has always been this, this gap between, I think, how the company, uh, sees itself and operates and then, and its biggest creators and, and PewDiePie at one point was their, were their biggest creators, a really canonical example there. And, and I, the, the YouTube rewind was started in 2010 and it was actually like for, for many years, sort of like, I think a really savvy marketing and, uh, creator outreach move from, from YouTube, right? It was a, so just it, it, was a, all the videos are still there. You go back and it's like a, um, a feel good sort of, uh, year in review clip um, that and and creators would often like you know, really want to get them there right because it's a really good opportunity and it also like sort of um, it's, it just sees their standing in the in the pecking order on YouTube. By 2018, this was when there was so much tension between like the creator class and what they saw the priorities of YouTube, which partly it was they they saw the you know, creator saw I think understandably like YouTube is is prioritizing traditional media. It's like letting TV and record labels, like they really want them on there and like traditional media that has the resources and and money to like produce more content and and higher quality content. Uh, and so that's going to, this is around the time of the advertising boycotts too. Like YouTube is much more inclined to run an ad on Jimmy Kimmel on YouTube than it is on Casey Neistat. Uh, and part of that is because not to get too in the weeds, but like ABC, which part of Disney actually like sells its own ads, like has enough. Of a sales team that can sell its own YouTube ads. Um, YouTubers don't have that. That, So there's, there's a lot of structure to YouTube's business that like does just the way it's built, um, tend to favor traditional media companies over its creators. And so 2018, I believe that was the one when they they had Will Smith, which was sort of like adding insult to injury to like put in a movie star that had no relevance to like the culture of YouTube, which like to be clear, a lot of YouTubers feel this very deeply in a lot of YouTube fans, like feel this affinity and they feel really insulted when they see someone like Will Smith. Uh, and that was, yeah, I believe YouTube has now removed the dislike button, uh, the thumbs down button from like the counts you can see, but it, it, that, I believe that became the most disliked video of all time uh, beating out uh, Justin Bieber. <laughs> actually um there, and just like a, you know the book goes into a lot more detail about the consequences there and the sort of like darkly comedic uh,
1: moments for the people working on youtube's marketing team but thank you for that and, and and speaking for personal experience i you know i i'm 25 i grew up with youtube i grew up with the sort of what i see is the golden age but obviously every generation sees the golden age and and this, you know, you mentioned Freddie Wong and you mentioned these sort of creators who are genuinely doing some really exciting stuff and it's sort of democratising content and there are musicians that I now follow now who started on YouTube. And 2018, that that Rewind, it's partly Will Smith, it's also partly that Jimmy Kimmel and John Oliver and all of these people feature far more than the traditional creators and you get the sense that um, that we're pulling away from that, that nostalgia era. But something else that that video garnered was a lot of hatred for the fact that it included people who weren't American. And there is a, a chronic America-centrism throughout YouTube's ideology, not only legally, and that's caught them out previously, but also in terms of content, also PewDiePie and that whole debacle about him fighting against a Bollywood channel. Could you speak about the America-centrism America centrism in uh, in YouTube?
2: Yes, and I'll come out the gate and say that I'm probably contributing to his own book as, like, Fairly uh, American-centric, which was just that, you know, that was, like, um, I had some regret about it. There was stuff in the cutting room floor, like, that I left out. Uh, you know, I think Europe is clearly, like, a European regulation, and, like, the the, the press in, in, in the UK is a big part of the story and some of the changes. Anyway, sorry. But, so, the like, just wanted to clear my conscience there, which is that uh, the the book itself, because it's such a, it's an American company, and, like, because I could and didn't want to write like an 800 page thing. I, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you talk to, if you talk to any employees, um, I don't think this is, this is unique to Google, but to work outside of Mountain View's, Google's headquarters or YouTube's headquarters, there is like a, a, like, you know, they have to sort of wait for California to wake up to make decisions. Like they feel like very second class in the the way they operate um you know emerging markets uh this was uh certainly the case at at facebook and and definitely at youtube and we don't talk about it enough you know they they went in they pushed for like we want people to produce um youtube and local languages across the world without any of the resources for staffing for moderation or not just moderation but like having policy people that like understand the political landscape india where where youtube is the, the biggest audience TikTok has has been banned there. YouTube has uh, something on like 360 million monthly viewers. It's just insane, right? It's more people than, than the entire US. And and I think you know there are dozens of languages spoken there. Like YouTube's ability to moderate and not just actually literally just understand the languages being spoken in, at, at scale, they uh, certainly are, are not adequate around that. Uh, and then two, like to understand the intricacies of like caste. And like Indian politics and be able to identify, you know, like hate speech there and then deal with uh, the Indian government. So yes, there there could be whole chapters or books about like, um, YouTube and other platforms in, in India. Why are they so parochial is sort of your question. Uh, I don't know. That's a good, I, I mean, I think Google would push back on that and certain like they're run, Google's run by an Indian born engineer. It had a big, you know, the, you mentioned T-Series, which was the Bollywood channel that, um, like the huge Bollywood hits on YouTube that, that became ascendant, um, and like took PewDiePie's crown for most subscribers. T-Series was, was, I, I hit that sweet spot for, for YouTube and Google, which was, um, you know, it was a traditional media company ostensibly like coming onto YouTube, which they've always wanted. Uh, it was, they had this big push for the called next billion users. It's a whole like division within, within Google focused on 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 like India and Asia or and basically everywhere but China. And so you know I think the company has certainly more like Google it given just Google I think has is certainly thinking a lot more about the rest of the world than than other companies. So maybe I'll push back on that a little bit. I do think and like some of the decisions they make are, you know, even some of the content moderation decisions in the sense that like they want to be uh, they want to have, like, a, as much as they can, like, a blanket global policy. You know, I, here's an example. Like, somewhat former executive said this to me, and you know, because they were talking about d- disagreed. It was after YouTube had made a pretty stringent uh, policy around the 2020 election in the U.S., uh, which was, like, widely agreed. Like, there are a lot of people that agreed, like, this was the right case. You know, you basically want to, like, uh, prohibit people from saying the 2020 election was rigged. Um, and that, like the, the Trump argument that, that it was stolen. And the question was like, is YouTube going to do the same thing in Venezuela? Is it going to do the same thing in like any disputed election now? I think the, the, outer, the obvious response to that is like, why would go in this market without this sort of plan? But uh, I think that's the, that, that certainly those conversations are happening in, inside Google, you know, like when, when Russia, when the Kremlin called for, for Google and Apple to remove Navalny, the, the opposition leader in, in Russia. I believe it was a voting app. You remember that recently this past year? I heard from people on Google. It's like, well, you know, Kamala Harris, the vice president in, in the U S was basically calling for us to take down Trump's account. Like how is it any different? And I think that's a little bit of, um, uh, bending backwards, uh, logically, but, but just want to give readers, a sense of like how this powerful company thinks like they, that I think that is an, an
1: important to, to get across and understand. I think that's a very fair defense. Um, and actually, you know, you mentioned uh, PewDiePie, and you mentioned PewDiePie regularly throughout, throughout your work. He is a Swede, American in many ways, culturally, but, but, a, but a Swede. There are five words after you describe him paying for someone to write hate speech uh, on the sign, And, and the, the words are, still, he posted the video. And I think that can apply to PewDiePie. I think it can apply to Logan Paul and his video in the Japanese Suicide Forest. It can apply to Millions of videos here. This compulsion to create content feeding into the algorithm and ever increasingly extreme. Do you think that that's something that uh, was there from the start? That's still there. Do you think it's inherent to YouTube? How, how, how important are those words, still he posted the video, to a creator's mindset throughout this history? Uh, I
2: think they're really important. I'm glad you left onto them. Yeah, there's a, another much more benign example, but in, of a, of a they talk about a, a Olga K, which is she was one of like the first YouTubers and uh, early on, and and then like decided to leave I think around 2014 or 2015, and like had a moment where she like posting these videos like almost almost daily just because she felt like she had to, right, and like telling the audience like, sorry I don't have a like basically just post the entire video to say like sorry I don't have a, another video for you today. I don't think that's unique to YouTube. I think that like TikTok and, and Instagram, I think, um, you know, any, any place that there's like a, uh both a financial incentives and then like a, just a technological incentive to, to take peak posting. People are going to do that. You know, it's like, I, I like I do think that like PewDiePie is a, is a much more complicated story, but in some degree, like similarly to the like creator burnout, like all creators, major creators, have, 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 a lot of them have addressed this and dealt with this issue. Like it's not, and I think like YouTube talks about it this way, and I think it's really interesting. That, like they have the first half of it right, and they don't have a solution for the, the second half. The first half is like oh, like well we're not like TV. Like TV has you know, TVs and movies. You like shoot for nine months, then you get a break. Like right? there's like a there's a programming schedule that's like built in. Um, and I think, you know, like, look at, we haven't talked about kids yet, but like children's content is, is gigantic on YouTube. Um, there are laws in place in, in California and other States, like children can only sh- like work as like for child labor laws. Basically you can only work in media a certain hour that doesn't exist in the internet. Uh, and there's no, there was no until recently, like regulation for, for, um, like YouTube basically operated in this sort of gray zone legally. And I think they like for children and creators too, like that's a really fascinating example because they like a sense of agency, like how much of these kids actually posting versus how much of their parents posting or forcing them to post. And so, sorry, YouTube is well aware that like, Oh, burnout is, is partially because like creators feel compelled to do this. Like we're not telling them to do this. You know, it's like, well, even though your, your sort of algorithms are, are making it pretty clear that they need to, to post I mean, and YouTube pushed back on this a few years ago and said like no 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 there's you know we have some data that shows if you don't post every day you still don't lose traffic. I don't I'm like as far as I know they haven't actually like shown that data publicly which suggests to me that it's not like that strong of a case. Uh and, and they don't I don't think they have a solution in, in place. And you know a lot of those conversations about creator burnout that they were having a few years ago have sort of disappeared because now you have this um new internet new competition from TikTok and so YouTube telling creators like hey you need to be posting shorts And long form, like, and like, basically, you know, it's going back to this, like, you need to be posting here on shorts in addition to your TikToks. So I I think, you know, this is the way that the the platform is, is structured. Like, it doesn't really make sense for them just to solve the burnout problem.
1: So another you know, you, you mentioned a couple of times there the algorithm telling them. It's sort of this this Lovecraftian god that you that you offer it up and the algorithm either chooses to to favor you or not. And most of the discourse recently has been about how the algorithm has pushed people towards traditionally, you know, conservative, far-right or right sorts of things. There's a brilliant case study, you talk about the sort of YouTube skeptics, for which I, when I was a teenager, used to, you know, binge watch and um and then you, you mentioned that this is sort of like a 17th century coffee house, but at some point the conversation shifted and suddenly misogyny and homophobia and some really toxic stuff happens. Just going to put it bluntly, is YouTube's algorithm inherently right-wing or is that simply the people who go on it, the ecosystem itself? I don't know if, a, if an algorithm can be inherently uh, political in some ways
2: I think like I, I do think that like the algorithm is, is you know not this sort of it's, a, it's like the book I, I like that Lovecraftian term you use um, you know I also wanted to demonstrate like that there are people inside the company that often felt like this thing was out of their control but like they, they are writing this like, like they are they have like they're they're people at YouTube that like have this code and, and like this, this machine is they have a lot of neural networks and artificial intelligence in it but it's not like it, it doesn't uh, you know, it's not its a sentient being. So I think like, I do think do, I certainly think it's true that like the, the company say like was pretty naive about uh politics for, for, for many years. um And then for a variety of reasons, like didn't act on some of the fringe and, and far right. I think more recently, they certainly have more recently. And part of that was because of like, they're responding to pressure from their employees, from advertisers, from politics, from, from society, like after the George Floyd killing, like that was, really when they like flip the switch and, and turn off a, a bunch of accounts. And after the Christchurch, the Christchurch shooting was another example of this like extremely pivotal, pivotal moment in the company. I do think like Becca Lewis is this researcher at Stanford that's done some phenomenal work and people can mention the book. And it's like, she goes much deeper on this, like the, the, the structure of of YouTube and sort of influencer and just like the way that it's, it's built to like have these sort of strong audiences uh, is, is made for, uh, it's just like tailored for, uh, um, what she claimed, like arguably like, are correct, like a lot of institutional money, like think tanks kind of came in and like created, like put out these, these, uh, young YouTubers and bloggers that were really appealing to people there. I do think that part of the issue was that just the way that media works, like a lot of traditional media, like MSNBC, and the sort of like, if you call it the progressive and, and, and liberal media, like just ignored YouTube and the internet for a long time. I think that's changing, but I think that was like just right-wing media, which is like much better at using the internet and using YouTube. Um, I think those are like the, the two main factors, uh, that you have these, these sort of networks, like Becca's term, these sort of influencer, like right-wing networks in place. Um, there's another interesting research on the like great replacement theory, which also operates in this sort of like a network of videos that make very, Uh, channels and institutions and and vloggers that make very similar videos about a very similar, about a similar theme. Uh, and then I think, and the great replacements are a fascinating example because it's sort of, uh, they, they're really good at like these channels, um, walking up to YouTube's line and not, and figuring out ways not to cross it. And I think like there's, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, they don't act because in some ways because they like, you know, they'll talk about immigration in, in a particular way and driving on this message that like Muslim immigrants and uh, in, in the U S like Latino immigrants are like this great threat to, to white society or American society. Uh, and for a long time, there's like free reign on, on, on YouTube. And, and I think that there's been a lot of interesting, um, you know, back and forth about sort of the, the, how much of it is the, the rabbit hole effect um, and driving, driving viewers uh, to these extremes. I, I think what's equally interesting that I found in the book compelling is like, how much the algorithm has the other side of the market, which is how much it, it, the, what, what it sort of what incentives it creates for, for the creators and people, the broadcasters and what kind of the video messages. And like, well aware, you know, this was, um, uh, I think it was like the wrestling WWE, uh, I don't know who it was, but controversy creates cash, right? And like it's the same reason why the the drama channels, there are a bunch of like TMZ style drama channels that have done like phenomenal. And then more recently we've seen like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. Like those things do really well because people at, like are drawn, like that hits all the right engagement metrics. And I think YouTube has is still very much struggling with like how to how to handle that.
1: And I will say is the as a counterpoint to the the right wing side of things a character that features a lot in your book and that I'm a huge fan of, uh, ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn, um, who's just a brilliant creator who creates these sort of feature film length discussions. I mean, there's a there's a quote you say, it's hard to imagine CBS or Netflix broadcasting a trans woman unpacking Hegel in lingerie and cat eye contacts. So there are, you know, left wingers and progressive people on the platform doing amazingly interesting and things that wouldn't get, a, you know, you wouldn't be able to do elsewhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I want to be very clear. Like I, I, this book is sort of a celebration too of, of YouTube culture and creators, which I think like and it's sort of a call for like pay more attention to them because they're, they're influential and important. Uh, and like the company like, Hey, pay more attention to them because they're this, uh, effectively like a big gig economy that you you created without, without a lot of like insurance in a place. And, and Natalie Aiden Comfort points is a really interesting example because you know, she makes, a believe, uh, in, as of a few years ago, but I think it's still the case, like most income from Patreon. Uh So Patreon is this, just started by a YouTuber that um early on like YouTube musician that like had these viral hits uh, and because he was, his band was playing covers because the way that copyrights and management, right, music rights works, like wasn't making that much money on, on YouTube. And so like, wow, I'm spending so much money to produce this, this thing that has like a big audience. And yet I'm like, not, that's not paying off for me start like a patronage model, um, which has, has taken off and and like YouTube is now sort of have like, a competing product of that. You know, talk to people at YouTube, but, like why didn't we invent that first? Which I think is a really interesting question like in, in another um, sort of way to like, explore this like path. What could have been and even like a path forward is like what, how does the internet work in more of a, like a patronage model uh, where, you know, creators can make things that don't
1: need to scale to as many eyeballs as possible in order to to be successful. A final question that jumps on that that final um word that you said that you said creator and there are these words content product creator the sort of nomenclature that's that's ubiquitous now. There's also a, an interesting moment when Chad and Steve announced the move with Google and and they they end the video by going oh we can't do that cut. This sort of faux realness that I think Lindsay Ellis calls manufactured authenticity on, on YouTube. There's a sense that, both with the nomenclature and with this sort of style, that YouTube has shifted something. It has, it has changed media in some way that you can see it trickling into traditional media as well. There's moments where you talk about it's close to a collective human memory as a, as a big thing, but as a discourse and, and as a, a sort of engine for, for creativity. How do you see YouTube changing? media changing arts
2: yeah there's an obvious one that you know uh we didn't mention like you know one of youtube's early struggles and it, it spends a lot of time in the in, its, in the book and an important part of its history is it got sued by Viacom uh for billion dollars for copyright infringement Viacom owns mtv fast forward you know uh 15 years later um youtube won that lawsuit uh VICOM, mtv now in the us at least the programming like the most popular show is just like a recap of youtube viral youtube videos um, so, like, that was just a, a perfect encapsulation of, like, uh, how the, the culture, had, like, the Kingmakers just, just, um, flipped. Uh, I mean, I think, like, you know, TikTok is, is now ascendant and, um, like, taking over sort of youth culture, uh, in this really, and it's a, like, similar, I think it's a similar, uh, it, similar dynamic to, to YouTube. Um, you know, I do, like, it's sort of, I think there's two, but one is there's like certainly like a certain, you know, there's a YouTube aesthetic that has uh, permeated a lot of things. And, and I think that the benefits of that is like, you know, the TikTok is, you can see this too. And it's still on YouTube, like unleashing all sorts of like forms of creativity uh, and brilliance that like never existed in, in traditional media. Uh, and that stuff is like, obviously worth celebrating. You know, it's also there is a certain dynamic about how just like with, with YouTube shorts and TikTok of like flipping through and. Um, and sort of this numbing quality that I, I think is um, I'm really curious to see how that researchers feel about that 20 years from now but um I think the other the other like permanent change in in that, that YouTube has made is this idea that like it's still pretty revolutionary like it's not that new of an idea that like you can you don't need like the gatekeepers you don't need agents um, you don't need producers you don't need directors like you can sort of build your own media empires and that's just beginning like mr beast is uh right now probably the most popular youtuber in the world like there's no there was assumption for a long time that like oh youtube talent is going to like go on to make tv and movies Like mr beast is going to keep making youtube i think until he like can't anymore like it's 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 now become like it is the pinnacle uh effectively for careers and um i think that's sort of transforming the company and like a lot of the idea of like pop culture and entertainment, and that'll be like I don't I don't see that changing anytime
1: soon. Final question, which is influencer boxing. Are you, are you aware of this phenomenon? Uh yeah yeah I mean Logan Paul and KCI. Oh, yeah and and also I mean it's it's now this this burgeoning you know world and 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 media empire. Do you see you know traditional media have have they incorporated it? Have they you know sort of changed in any way i mean obviously the bleed from john oliver and youtube and uh you know carpool karaoke and youtube it's 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 all it's all bleeding in but do you see a, a sort of singularity point or, or are they going to forever stay separate and a
2: singularity point where like tradition like sort of old school media and youtube um i think there'll be more i mean youtube is like as a company is is the one I mean, we mentioned tiktok and they're trying to like deal with tiktok but they're also like They are, you know, YouTube TV as a streaming service, like they're, they're focusing a lot on like, not just that, but also on like the your experience of watching YouTube on a, on a connected TV, a smart TV. I think they're going to start maybe like looking at, well, could there be a way for you to like leave a comment or a like, or like engagement, like some sort of like buy merchandise. Basically, you know, YouTube is becoming more and more like TV and I think TV will become more and more like YouTube. So I mean, it'll be really interesting to see that. And I think TikTok is also trying to move in that direction too. Like um, they they both are not just comfortable with with, uh,
1: commanding our attention on phones. Like they want, they want the big screen too. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much, Mark, for for your time. This has been so interesting. Um, Audience, please check out like comment, subscribe from Mark. It is a really genuinely fascinating read. Um, And it isn't as mean to YouTube as I've made it out. It is, it is, it is a fair reading, I think. Thank you so much, Mark. Audience, please check that out and uh, have a good day. Thanks for having me.
0: This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Mark Bergen and was produced and presented by Luke Naylor Perrett. The executive producers are myself and Esme Bright, and the series is edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed our dive into the world of tech, join us next Friday when I'll be speaking with Adrian Hon. He'll be telling us about how the ostensibly benevolent techniques of game design are being used by corporations and governments to create a pernicious new system of social control. That's next week on the podcast. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.